0: From Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus that is, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Serenity, sometimes hard to come by. Serenity is a companion to courage. So when Jesus and his disciples are floating on a sea that was before the book ever named it so, a perfect storm, or it was to them, Jesus wishes for his disciples' calm in the midst of chaos. Jesus who knew that from the beginning God had taken the mixed up elements of what was there in his creation and brought them into a kind of an order that finally makes life livable and good. Jesus knew that. The disciples Sort of knew that. But in the midst of those few moments of disorder, of chaos, as they were riding that sea of untranquility, they wished for the kind of calm that they saw in him. We wish for calm too, most of us, one time or another. And we wish for that thing that brings it about so hard to come by, faith. Jesus, in a bit of impatience, said to his disciples, Why are you free? Have you no faith? And, of course, the reaction of the disciples, which we don't know except by guess, was like the reaction of any of us strapping men would be. Women too, I suppose. Yeah, we're afraid. That's nearly death, Jesus. In the great story of his own early life, David seemed serene. It's hard to imagine all that was going on in his mind when He came to visit the army, the battlefield, to bring food to his brothers. You know that there are many places in the world now where if you are sick and in the hospital, your family or you, if you have none, have to take care of getting food. It's worse than the airlines in some place. The food's not provided. We are spoiled in that sense. So it was for soldiers. They ate where they could. And David, probably under his father's direction, as I recall, left home and went to the battlefield to take food to his fighting brothers. And David got pulled into the action in a story that has come down through the ages with great beauty to us and with great courage for us. What we see in this event, this story that you heard read so well a while ago, is that David outfought and therefore outfought his enemy. We'll talk more about how David changed the form of battle and therefore won. It was an article not long ago in the New Yorker magazine by Malcolm Gladwell, who writes about such things. He talked about several things that come out differently depending on how you attack the problem, and he titled it How David Beat Goliath. Though he talked about others than that particular story, the lead article in his the lead item in his article was a story about a little girls' basketball team out in Silicon Valley a few years ago. They didn't have a coach. There was one young girl on that team whose father finally agreed to coach the team, reluctantly because he had never even seen a basketball game. He was from Mumbai. His daughter, Anjali, was to play on the team, and he wanted her to have the experience. So he set out to see a basketball game, and he did. And during the game, to this man with new eyes on basketball, he discovered that about half the game was wasted waiting on the other end for the team to come down and try to shoot in that goal. They would come down, try to shoot their goal, and then a bit more of the time was wasted while this team went down and waited for this team to bring the ball down and shoot for this goal. And he thought, why all the wasted time? To make a long story short, he decided that he would teach his short, incompetent, young 10-year-old girls to full court press in a system in which that was not often used. And so as the season progressed, those little girls caught fire. And what happened in a nutshell was that those little girls brought chaos to the other end of the court with people who had been used to dribbling all the way down to the mid-court line and then planning what to do next, suddenly had to play the game. And he took them all the way to very high levels. It's not worth going into it at this point. It makes the story too long. But he did, according to the author of this article, what David had done. He looked at the battlefield and found another way to engage he outfought Goliath instead of outfought him. We know what would have happened if David had taken Goliath's tack and everybody else in both armies' tack and gone up to swing a sharp knife at a body far bigger than you are. Wouldn't have worked. But David. I've got skills he doesn't even know about. And Goliath had always, when there were challenges, and there weren't many, Goliath had expected, well, you do battle hand to hand with swords, don't you? David brought his strengths to the contest. and he would have said as he did say in what gale read and in some other places that his faith was his greatest strength david was fighting for something bigger than either army or himself or the battle his source of calm in the faiths of battle was That internal stuff that had nothing to do with how tall or broad or long are the arms. It had nothing to do with the physical. It was a spiritual thing with which David fought. Brains and spirit. Faith was the thing absent for the disciples too in their fear of water. Some of these guys had been on water before, maybe all of them. Some of them were fishermen by trade, you remember? And apparently they had not seen many, if any, storms of that kind. Now, they knew the Psalms, and they knew that there were encouragements in their scriptures that would give them a measure of faith. Listen to what they knew. This is from Psalm 107. These are words, maybe not David's, they're not ascribed to David in this instance, but they are words out of struggles of Israel, particularly when they were in exile. And the psalmist wrote this. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their calamity. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, (laughs) and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wonderful works to mankind. They knew that story. Jesus knew that story. And whether they remembered it or not, Jesus remembered it apparently well enough to say to them, Where is your faith? Why are you scared? This group of men admitted to their fear. Hard for men to do. A number of years ago, a group of men in the congregation I was serving decided that I needed a distraction. They never told me why, but they decided they would take me from uh, the D.C. suburbs of Silver Spring, Maryland, down to southern North Carolina to play golf. I hardly ever played golf, but they thought that would help my soul. You'll have to ask them. I don't know why. (laughs) It was a generous act, and I'm not making fun of it. It was a wonderful time, but we got there, driving all the way through absolutely beautiful weather, and on the first tee, it began to drizzle. By the third tee, it was a sprinkle. By the fourth tee, it was a shower. And you catch the drift, do you not? By the seventh tee, I thought I was with a bunch of crazies. And by the eighth and then the ninth tee, all of us, I'm sure, I know I was thinking, why don't, doesn't somebody say, let's go home? <laughs> but there is that in men who will not admit to being frustrated or fearful. Is there not? Father's Day, especially fathers at times, we can't be that vulnerable. Finally, you know, preachers can be. Preachers are somewhat feminine anyway, and you've got a good one. <laughs> Preachers can say, I don't think we ought to be out here. By that time, it was thundering at a distance, and we knew what else was coming. Nobody else would do that. Those strong, powerful, macho men couldn't say, it's raining, folks. We ought to get in out of the rain. So it was with those disciples. And yet, it came to the point where those disciples were scared beyond their macho being. And they finally woke up the man in charge. Hey, we're about to die. Hey. Death was the issue. You know, they they may have been concerned about the discomfort of being thrown into the water, but we know death was the issue. They were afraid they would die. And in Jesus' whole life, the same is true. Death was the issue. Jesus' point was to help people understand that even death is not to be feared. It may be painful, as his was. It is painful for us to anticipate and many times for us to feel. But Jesus' message, which he illustrated in a way on that sea that day, his message was have no fear. Death doesn't invalidate you. We're about to die, Jesus. And in effect, Jesus said to his disciples that night, and maybe now, so what? And it sounds so callous. And yet, it is so much larger than just stopping this wonderful life that we are enjoying and want to keep with. So much larger. Because death and our life sometimes controls us and panics us and brings a chaos in here that becomes problematical. And, of course, then the larger issue as well that Jesus was dealing with, another large understanding. Even the wind and the sea obey him. What Jesus would have us know is that we can be brave because neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor things present, past, or to come, all of that does not threaten the connection that we have with our Creator and that he has with us. So our nerves about threats to our existence and of our well-being are probably too frayed, our nerves too much on edge, the calm of a secure companion like Jesus who sees God's ways and speaks of them, who understands faith. Jesus is a calming presence. Jesus calms the sea and the hearts of those riding on it. The psalmist said, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to mankind. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Don't be bashful about the praise of God for the calm serenity that he offers and gives to us. That's his word. Will you bow and let's pray. Father, sometimes on our own we can be very strong and sometimes we reach our limit and depend upon yours. And so, We thank you for Jesus' promise of presence and encouragement and strength and pray that his will will be done in our lives according to his teaching of all disciples everywhere. In his name, amen.